0: Eagle one. The package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and you know what this is. This is cyber. In America, the trains, they never seem to run on time. On February 3rd, a train crashed in East Palestine, Ohio, releasing toxic chemicals into the air, and almost a month later, another train owned by the same company also derailed, also in Ohio. And that's not all. Trains in Charlotte are running slower than they should. New York City... Can't seem to fit its trains into its new station. And the list, it goes on and on. You want to hear about paperwork in Boston slowing down trains? We're going to get to that too. We're going to get to that too. What the hell is going on with mass transit in America? Well, if you're a longtime cyber listener, you might already know some of the answers to this question. And that is in thanks to returning champion, motherboard senior writer Aaron Gordon. That's right. It's another episode of Matthew and Aaron Do America. This week, we are tackling the train system in the U.S. and mass transit and how our inability to keep things moving reflects a larger systemic problem with the whole damn system. I guess systemic problem with the whole damn system is kind of redundant, isn't it? Uh, it sounded good when I wrote it. Anyway, thank you. Jo- thank you for joining us, Aaron. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, thank you for having me as always to talk about trains, Galt.
0: <laughs> Did you ever in your life think you were going to be talking about trains this much? Uh and that people would be so attentive to it? I
1: wasn't even like into trains in the remotest as a child or up through twenty seventeen was when I started to get into it. So like I should think the short answer is no. What changed? Uh, I got fucked by the subway one too many times. And then I got laid off and had eight weeks of severance or 10 weeks or something. And was like, I'm going to spend these 10 weeks figuring out what the fuck
0: is wrong with the subway. And here I am. And now here (laughs) you are. All right. Well, let's start off with your most recent piece. Um, It is about the Ohio attorney general uh, basically agreeing with uh, what I would assume is your assessment that the crash in East Palestine was preventable. Right.
1: Yes, it sure was. Uh, And I mean, like both in a philosophical sense in that all accidents are preventable and also in a much more specific sense that this particular accident was very much preventable.
0: In what way? I mean, I I, I just want to go over some things that we've talked about at length in the show very, very briefly. How is this preventable? And what did the attorney general say here?
1: Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the attorney general's, uh, lawsuit against Norfolk Southern, the rail company that, that whose train derailed in East Palestine. So this, uh, is a civil lawsuit for damages and is a 58 count complaint laying out all these different ways in which Norfolk Southern is legally liable essentially through negligence, um, for the derailment. And they're kind of, two main points that uh the ohio attorney general makes one is that norfolk southern broadly speaking has had an increasing rate of accidents and derailments over the last decade specifically um an 80 percent increase in accidents and derailments over the last 10 years when using um uh ton miles traveled as the as the metric rather than just like accidents per year which is the number that railroads and their associations like to use because uh, it's a bad metric, but it makes them look better. Um, but you know, a lot of, a lot has changed in railroading over the last 10 years. They run fewer, but longer trains. And so, um, it's better to use ton miles as a metric or, or it, it, not even, or, you know, either ton miles or per million miles or just some kind of like rated, prorated metric. Um, and that's what the, uh, that's what the complaint uses. And then the other way in which it says the accident was Foreseeable and preventable is that, as we now know, uh, the National Transportation Safety Board has said that the cause of the derailment in East Palestine was an overheated wheel bearing on uh, rail cars axle. Um, we don't know why that wheel bearing overheated or, you know, what kind of made Norfolk Southern not notice it before it derailed. But we do know that's the reason the train derailed. And the complaint says that this, you know, exact or very, very similar issue has happened um, on other recent Norfolk Southern derailments, indicating a trend of, you know, these types of issues and that Norfolk Southern should have taken steps to prevent, you know, further derailments from from this cause, but didn't. And so the East Palestine train derailed.
0: So how many train derailments have there been in the past, say, two years? So on average, there's about
1: a thousand train derailments a year on in freight rail in this country, or I'm sorry, in all rail in this country. But I will just say that that includes a lot of derailments that we would reasonably consider minor like okay. ones in rail yards ones on sidings where they're doing you know complicated but very slow maneuvers of freight cars um derailments there are not terribly rare um they can still be very dangerous um for example a norfolk southern employee was uh, tragically killed in a recent rail yard accident um shortly after east palestine derailment. Um, So these are serious problems, but they're not what most people think of when they think of train derailments. Um, In terms of train derailments that happen on what we call mainline track, which is, you know, train tracks where trains are moving at a solid clip through potentially populated areas. uh, Usually there are about three to four hundred of those a year. And then a minority, but significant minority of those trains carry hazardous materials which may or may not be involved in the derailment. And so you're usually looking at somewhere between 20 to 40 derailments a year involving the spilling of a significant amount of hazardous materials.
0: And is that more And this? I know you're just just kind of putting some of this stuff together. uh, So you may not have an answer to this, but is that worse than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or about the same? Do we have any idea?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a deceptively complicated question um, because there are different ways to measure derailments and significant derailments and the rate at which derailments occur. Because, as I already said, you know, there's been a huge shift in the way railroads have operated in the last 10 years, something we've talked about on the show before um, with the adoption of precision scheduled railroading, which has really emphasized train length and uh, running profitable trains rather than providing regular predictable service using more but smaller trains. And so in that sense, you can see how you can uh, manipulate the statistics to kind of tell any story you want here Um, because there are fewer trains running, but the trains that are running are longer and carrying more tonnage so even though the overall number of derailments may be reducing or flatlining, um, that is just a byproduct of the fact that the railroads are running fewer trains. So obviously, the fewer trains you run, the less likely it is they are to derail. Um, but what we're seeing is that you know if you if you uh, chart the number of derailments, and you can you know you you prorate them essentially to efficiency metrics to uh rail tonnage to um you know per mile you know million miles traveled these types of things um it sure seems like the rate of derailment has been increasing particularly in the last three to five years
0: and i want to shout out to one of your would you believe that this episode was almost a year ago look at this uh, it was in April of last year, America's freight train drivers are exhausted and overworked, uh, where we had a long conversation about what exactly is kind of going on at the ground level with, the, with people that work on the railroad um, in this country. It will really give you a very clear view of how bad it is to work on the railroad and uh, what they're dealing with and kind of, I think, dig into some of the systemic causes for why the crashes are happening Right. Uh, I don't want to re redo all of that right now, but I just want to point people to it. Uh, you can go listen to that right now on, uh, any of your fine podcast apps. Uh, anyway, can we go to your spreadsheet?
1: Yeah, let's bring up the
0: spreadsheet. So you've been tracking this stuff, uh, lately. When did you start? When did you start this? Uh, so I've been,
1: uh, getting Google alerts for almost two years. Uh, about train derailments. And so these will include basically anytime a local news publication or TV station or whatever reports a train derailment, um, which for me is kind of like a, a, a decent barometer of when a train derailment is significant enough that, you know, it, it should be considered like worth noting. Um, it's not a perfect metric by any means because train derailments happen all the time that you know due to the reduction in local news across the country maybe don't get covered as much as they should but if a train derailment significantly disrupts traffic patterns you know uh, creates a fire um spills something into people's homes it will almost always get covered by some local news entity and so that's kind of like the the barometer i use and um but i wasn't keeping track of them in a spreadsheet um mostly just because Uh, I don't know. It just, I had other things to do and it never seemed like the best use of my time at any given time, which I now know was a mistake. Always track things in spreadsheets. Spreadsheets are great. Um, so I started this spreadsheet as you can see at the beginning of March.
0: It's, it's really funny looking at this. This is just a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, and already we have, I'm going to try to zoom in here. So it's a little bit, maybe more readable for the, for the stream. Uh, Ogden, Utah, magnesium chloride, uh, West Virginia, diesel dumped into a river, Kansas, uh, leaking denatured alcohol, uh, Washington, the most recent one from just a few days ago. Or is that today? That's today. Uh, 5,000 gallons of diesel. Um, why do you think that East Palestine captured our imagination in when it seems like this kind of thing is happening all the time?
1: It's a great question, and I wrote um, a story somewhat recently, basically asking this question, where I talked to um, an official in Sibley, Iowa, which had a very significant derailment in May 2021. Um, that was actually quite similar to East Palestine in a lot of ways. Um, I think it was a confluence of a couple of things. Uh, excuse me. One, one is... Obviously, the release of the the controlled burn of the vinyl chloride in East Palestine is something that was fairly unique. Now, I should be I should note that um, it was a hazardous materials event before they before the East uh, before. uh, I'm sorry, before the vinyl chloride was released uh, because there was petroleum burning and that's quite a dangerous hazardous material situation um i believe some of it also leaked as well before the final chloride was released um but you know just that spectacle of the plume of smoke rising up above the town and then kind of lingering over it and then obviously creating adverse health effects that the that the people of East Palestine are reporting i think combined with the attention that this got from uh the extremes of both political spectrums was really the, like, secret sauce that made East Palestine the the controversy that it was. Because I will say that, like, you know, is my job to track and report on these things. I was watching East Palestine closely from the morning after it derailed. Um, I even messaged, I, I'm going to do, you know, I... It, I'll even shout out that I messaged our editors, our bosses on a Saturday to be like, I think this one's worth paying attention to. You know, like it was pretty obvious to me immediately. This was one of the more severe, severe derailments happen in recent years. Um, But it did not take off from a national attention perspective until like three days later when Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted about it. That was, that like, that to me was like the divider of when the rhetoric, the discourse, the attention it was getting on social media and the response to it by like officials and politicians trying to then piggyback on that attention really went into overdrive. Um, that was the huge dividing line for me. And I'm, I think there's a kind of complex social and social media phenomenon at there more than any particulars about the East Palestine derailment, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think at that point, it was about some kind of almost competition between the far left and the far right of who could pay attention to this more, of who was more tuned in to the needs of real Americans than the other, of who was really the... The, the party speaking against power or against corporate interests, you know, it just like it captured a lot of these kind of dynamics. I think both political extremes are really fighting. or are both uh, extremes of the spectrum, I should say, um, like the extreme ends of the spectrum are really competing over right now. And I think East Palestine became a focal point for that. And I think that's the reason why it became, you know, obviously in addition to the extremely real issues at play here, um was the reason that became like such a huge scandal as opposed to you know being more in line with what we see from derailments across the country every year
0: uh, i do have to shout out chat right now very quickly who is uh calling me out for mispronouncing palestine
1: yeah that's right yeah <laughs> i wasn't gonna say anything but yeah he the person in the chat is absolutely right it's east palestine uh I don't know. I don't have any like etymological history to share with you, uh, on why that is, but it is East Palestine
0: when I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Uh, I usually do a lot of stuff in the, uh, uh, international relations warfare kind of space. So I think of it as Palestine. Uh, but I will, I will endeavor to remember that it is Palestine. And I apologize to the, the good people of Ohio for butchering the name. Um, it will not be the last time, I am sorry to say. Uh, <clears throat> dipping back into Sibley real quick, uh, I just want to read this chunk from your article. Uh, of the 47 cars that derailed, three immediately burst into flames. Two of those cars contained aviation fuel. The third, liquid asphalt. Liquid asphalt. Um and I lost my train. According to the presentation given to the Iowa Department of Homeland Security, aside from the three, seven more cars contained hazardous, various hazardous materials, including sulfur and hydrochloric acid, which was which was forming a fog that made it difficult to breathe. Another car contained pot- potassium hydroxide, which is highly corrosive and can cause severe burns. Both the hydrochloric acid and potassium potassium hydroxide spilled out of the car. The train derailed adjacent to a small body of water called Otter Creek, which emergency crews dammed within a few hours. That's it. That's wild. How are how often are they this bad? Are these kind of outliers that there's a chemical spill like this? Uh, They're definitely statistical
1: outliers, if you look at it that way, Um, in that there are, you know, like what thousands of derailments every couple of years and probably every. I don't know. I, I, I'm just kind of like trying to estimate off the top of my head because you can't really statistically measure how, you know, degrees of fuckery. Um, but uh, but I think like generally speaking, you see a, a derailment this bad every year, two years, something like that. So a statistician would tell you that is a statistical outlier. Um I think a normal person, though, would be like, that is far too often. You know, <laughs> that shouldn't shouldn't be happening that often.
0: Yeah, people were people were evacuated. And uh, the local official you talked to <laughs> compared it to the Oklahoma City bombing.
1: Well, so, OK, uh, I want to clarify that point. He There was one of the issues with train derailments, especially for emergency response crews, is for some reason. The labeling of hazardous materials on train cars is solely geared towards when the car is right side up and on a track. So if, for example, a train derails and, you know, all the train cars are kind of smooshed together as happens when they get derailed or they're upside down or on their side, sometimes you can't see the hazardous material decal that tells you what's in the car. Other times, as was the case in Sibley, there's extremely hot shit on fire. Like in this case, it was a petroleum or liquid asphalt or whatever it was. And it burns at an extremely high temperature and it melts the decals. So you can't, so they, they, they aren't legible if they even like still exist. So in that case, it takes time for first responders to figure out what's actually in the train cars, what they're dealing with. In this case, there was um sorry i'm going to have to pull up the article to remember exactly what it was there was a train car which they believed due to what they could make out from the decal and the manifest um may have been uh an extremely dangerous substance let me let me pull it pull it up uh ammonium nitrate ammonium nitrate yes thank you so they thought a car had ammonium nitrate in it which is like an an explosive used to it's a substance used to build explosives essentially um and they were extremely worried that if that you know if that uh tanker you know reached a critical temperature it would blow up the town um and that's why he made the oklahoma city bombing comparison now it turned out that the tanker had recently had that substance in it, but it's since been emptied. So it was not in the tanker, which was a huge relief to them, but they didn't figure that out for several hours.
0: Right. Ammonium nitrate. If people will remember uh, the port city of Beirut in Lebanon in 2020, it was a warehouse full of ammonium nitrate that had aged and then exploded, uh, which killed like 218 people. So if there's a possibility that there's ammonium nitrate somewhere, everyone has to be exceedingly careful. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, let's expand out our focus here then a little bit beyond just derailments, because it's not just, just the trains are derailing. Uh, they also suck. Uh, you said that uh, I, I am curious. I kind of want to know the personal story now when you'd been laid off, what happened that you, what exactly happened that you'd been screwed over by the MTA that you decided <laughs> to start looking at all of this? Like what, 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 What meeting did you miss? What you know? What delay did you have to suffer?
1: Okay, so uh, first, for the listeners, let's take off our freight rail train hat (laughs) and put on our commuter slash subway passenger train hat because we're we're gonna switch top. We're gonna switch gears here, and they are very Um, different
0: beasts. Yes,
1: uh, so. The backstory here is uh, I used to be a sports reporter. Um, I covered the 2016 Rio Olympics uh, and they built a new train line and a bunch of new bus rapid transit systems uh, ostensibly for that tournament. Um, they were they were widely considered uh, boondoggles and and corrupt, inefficient projects that serve no purpose except for the Olympics. I was down there and I reported a story on one of those bus rapid transit routes that basically like tore through and divided a working class community in Rio. And while I was there, um, someone was showing me around, you know, the bus route and the neighborhood and these types of things. Uh, And I remember him telling me, you know, this this bus, it's terrible. It goes so slow. It makes too many stops and it doesn't go anywhere anyone needs. And I took that bus home from this interview. And let me tell you, it was fantastic by American standards. It had, dedi- it had like these indoor, dedicated center island stops, completely separated lanes from the rest of traffic. It moved at a solid 35 to 45 mile per hour clip. It never hit a single traffic light. It was wonderful. And I was like, why is this guy so, you know, aside from like the geographic impact of the bus, I was like, why does he think this bus is so bad? And people said the same thing about the train, too. And I had the same reaction to the train. which is like this train runs great. What's the problem? And then I came back to New York. And in 2017, the New York City subway was essentially disintegrating, like it was failing to function on some of the most basic levels. It's kind of difficult to explain to people not in. New York, what it was like in 2017 when the subway was falling apart, but you could end up waiting 45 minutes at a stop during rush hour for a train that just like never came. This was like a fairly routine thing at a city where in a city where trains are supposed to come every few minutes during rush hour stations would get so dangerously overcrowded. The police had to had to uh, evacuate them on a few occasions. An A train derailed in Harlem, which was very bad. Um, I can't remember if anyone died, but many people were injured. And just generally speaking, like the system did not function on a day to day basis. And the thing, the reason why I started looking into it, it's not because I missed any particular meeting or like event or something that like pissed me off so much. I formed a vendetta. It was just, I didn't really understand why it was happening. I looked at the MTA's budget and it had a budget of like, I believe it was like $13 billion a year at the time. And I was like, well, that's like an annual budget. Yeah. I was like, and the the New York City subway system specifically, which, you know, it's a part of the MTA, had a budget of like eight or nine billion, if I recall correctly. Billion. Yeah, billion with a B every year. And I was like. Comparing it to trans other better transit systems. And I'm like, that's more money than they. So I'm like, but then I'd read all these articles saying like, well, it's a lack of funding. And you know, the government is going to spend $800 million on an emergency repair plan because they had a lack of funding and just none of it made sense to me. So that was when I started to look into it and I found you know, it wasn't a lack of money necessarily. It was that the money was being wasted. It was that it was being spent on the wrong things that didn't make the system better. And it was that management just wasn't paying attention to speed, efficiency, and maintenance like it should. And this was the end result of it. And uh, yeah, that's kind of like the long, the long story there.
0: All right, several so listeners, are going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. All right, Cyber Listeners, welcome back. We are on once again with Aaron Gordon. I'm always fascinated by This is an un, this is unfair, completely, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm always fascinated by uh all of my friends and coworkers who live in New York City constantly complaining about the subway because every time I go up there, it's like the most magical thing in the world to me. I'm not I've never had to wait 45 minutes for a train, uh but it's just a thing that doesn't exist in most of the country at all, like the mass transit in most of the rest of the country is non existent uh or or terrible um the the, yes. the It's so biased towards getting in a car and just using that to get where you're going that every time I'm able to like get across town in twenty minutes by just Riding these trains and getting to read a book, it feels it, – it, I cannot stress to you how magical it feels when I am riding those trains whenever I visit, whenever I have to come up for something. Um, that said, those magical systems do seem to be falling apart uh, because the, the problems have not stopped uh, since 2017, Right. Um, I'm going to call back to, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I think to build on that, like, you know,
1: one of the reasons I became so fascinated with what was going on with the New York city subway is unlike everywhere else in the country, there is no debate here about where mass transit fits into the city's transportation system. You will not find anyone with a modicum of common sense who will argue that, you know, the New York doesn't need the subway. It should like disinvest in it. Like who needs transit? Like it just doesn't make any sense here. It's obviously way too dense to rely on cars alone. No, what right? you do is it's you build,
0: like, you build another road on top of the roads. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then you just yeah. sell more cars and it'll be fine. Tunnels, tunnels everywhere. Um
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so like, what was interesting to me is even in a city where everyone agrees this is necessary and good, and it should be good. it still sucked, you know, relatively speaking. I mean, what I often said was New York city and I still, you know, New York city is the worst, best transit system in the world. You know, it doesn't really make sense to compare New York city's transit system to other American cities because it's fundamentally different for a lot of reasons. Um, It makes sense to compare New York City's transit system to other global megacities that have, in many cases, better transit systems, in some cases, worse transit systems. But like, I think that's the way to think. And then like the rest of the rest of the U.S. kind of operates in this totally different transportation mindset where the car is supreme. You know, I, I think it's worth remembering that something like 35 to 40% of all trans. And you know, I, 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 I'm actually going to look up the statistics first.
0: You're going to make me mug for the camera while you look it up. Um, I think Uh, this, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying you go ahead and I'll look this
1: up and then I'll finish my point.
0: A uh, comment from the chat that I think is absolutely true—that you're you're saying in New York City mass transit was impressive. Then I started traveling internationally and saw just how much better it could be. Um, I had a similar experience. Uh, I went to Berlin to cover something once and got to got to ride in in the nice German uh, transit system, and it was like this is lovely um, and a bit less scary <laughs> than, New yeah. than New York's the New York's subway. Not only that, uh, so
1: our boss Jason just got back from Japan, and he, oh. the first th- the first thing he did when he got back was he was like, "Aaron, <laughs> I kn- I didn't want to be one of those people who goes to Japan and gets train pilled, but I went to Japan and I got train pilled." Well, they, uh, they, but anyways, that the, I, I, I to to just circle back to my other point for a second what before the pandemic and i think it's even more skewed now one in every three public transportation trips takes place in new york city like that's how much new york city dominates uh, sorry one in every three, one in every three public transportation trips in the u.s right takes place in new york city that's still and wild so, to me yeah, yeah yeah i mean it is wild like as a the new york city metro area is a like something like 8% of the country's population. So this is hugely out of whack. Um, And I think that's why I often talk about New York city transportation issues more from a global perspective than from a U.S. perspective. And because the rest of the U S is still involved in this debate of like, should we have transit? How much should we fund it? Is it even legal to tax people (laughs) to fund transit? Like that's a debate in Florida right now. Um, you know like how you know like state legislator legislatures completely uh completely messing with city efforts to build transit systems uh which is a big thing going on in indianapolis you know just like the, most of the us is still engaged in a debate of whether transit is good or not whether they should fund it or not in most of the us transit is a service is like a welfare service, essentially. Yeah. It's for poor people who can't afford a car. Yep. And when, they, when new transit lines are proposed, as is happening in Philadelphia right now, is explicitly with the mindset that it will get poor people from the city to a large mall in the suburbs so they can work there and then go home back to the city. That's how most people outside of New York City think of transit in the U.S., uh, and I th- so that's why I talk about, you know,
0: New York very separately from the rest of the country in that regard can confirm in Dallas. Uh, yes, <laughs> it's, it's one, well, it's maybe changed a little bit. I don't want to speak to it. Uh, but it, yes, that is my feeling. There's a lot of stops outside the malls, uh, <laughs> along, along the Dallas, uh, along the Dallas tra- transit system. Thanks dart. Um, so you wrote recently, it's you know it's like New York, Philly, Boston, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, even places that do have these train systems. It's not looking great, right? Uh, yeah, Twenty-four so hours like, of news shows America's transportation hellscape. So let's start yeah, with Boston.
1: It, where do you want to start? Let's here. start with Boston. Okay, so in Boston, <laughs> last week. I saw you know a local news report that said Boston the like at 10 p.m. on a Thursday, Boston announced the the uh, agency that runs the Boston T, which is like their subway system, uh, announced that a slow order of 25 miles per hours, tw- 25 miles per hour or slower for the entire system, and it, which usually has a top speed of 40 and now the entire system was going to have to go between 10 and 25 now i've been you know paying attention to public transit for very closely for 5 years now and i had never seen anything like that um except outside of like at like extreme weather conditions like a blizzard or something like that and on top of it they didn't even really say why they made vague references to like some kind of inspection at a specific station. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. They had a press conference the following day where the interim general manager gave this introductory remarks that also was extremely vague. And it was very clear that all of the reporters who were there uh, didn't really know like what questions to ask as a result of it because it was so vague. It was like you didn't even know what to say as a result of it. And then at some point, the general manager used the word paperwork. And everyone's like, and then the reporter asked like, you meant use the word paperwork. Can you say more about what you meant? And essentially what he said was, during this inspection with the Department of Public Works and the train agency, that they had lost the paperwork for a recent track inspection and so they no longer knew which things they had fixed which ones they didn't or what was broken where the slow orders were supposed to be they basically had lost the inspection paperwork and so out of an abundance of caution as he put it they slowed down the entire system until they could figure out wh- you know what that pa- where that paperwork was and what it said And it's still it's still under slow orders. They've lifted it on some parts of the system. But I think the last I heard is like 30 percent of the of the system is still under these slow orders. Before this whole event happened, it was seven and a half percent, which in itself is very high. Like that was very bad. (laughs) And now it's at 30 percent. And they won't say like what the timeline is for lifting these slow orders. They don't know. And so they're advising commuters to budget an extra 20 minutes in each direction for every trip.
0: All right. Now let's take me to take me to Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh,
1: Charlotte's a bit more straightforward. Um, they also have a slow order, um, because they had a derailment in 2022 and they have since learned that in order to fix the flaw with the rail cars, all 42 in their system, I believe, um, They're going to have to do repairs on them, like, one by one, and that could take years. And so in the meantime, they have a slow order on the entire system as well.
0: All right. Well, this is all going to be fine. California is going to lead the way. There's going to be uh, a a high-speed rail in California, right? Maybe. (laughs) Aaron, no. No. so the high, the California high speed rail thing.
1: I'm sure a lot of listeners know that like this has been an ongoing scandal for a very long time. Um, the reason why it's lumped in with this 24 hours of news thing because the California High Speed Rail Authority issued a new update on how things are going, and the answer is not great. Um, so they have, as a, as you likely know, in 2000, you know, the, as a broad outline, in 2008. California voters approved a bond measure uh, to build a high-speed rail between Los Angeles and San Francisco. A fantastic idea, very necessary, very exciting. Um, It has exceeded costs by a little bit. It is now what was initially, I believe, something like an $8 billion bond measure. Uh, and they expected the system to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 billion, not system, the line, to cost maybe somewhere around $20 billion, is now expected to cost maybe in the ballpark of $128 billion. But the real answer is nobody actually knows how much it will totally cost, because they haven't completely figured out how to build the train through the mountains that lead to the Bay Area or L.A. respectively. The reason they haven't figured that out is because a couple of years ago, Governor Newsom, amidst the ballooning costs and project delays, decided that the authority would now focus on building the middle segment of the the high-speed rail, which connects Bakersfield and Merced. Now, if you're wondering where Bakersfield and Merced are, that is correct. <laughs> uh, it is. It, they are not major
0: cities. The I know point where of this. Bakersfield was. What was that? I know where Bakersfield is, and yeah, <laughs> explain it's, to the good people where Bakersfield is. Oh, it's where all the good country music is. It's part of like the. It's part of one of the valleys uh, in in the kind of the middle of nowhere in California. Uh, yeah. That you know is is. And I haven't been there in a long time. That's where my mother is from is from kind of oh, okay. near that area. Uh, so it's like, yeah, you keep, I can't admit why. Yeah. Why?
1: Why? <laughs> well, the, the idea was, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. This isn't some conspiracy. This is exactly what Newsom said was the idea is uh, if they build the middle part first, it will be like a proof of concept for people that high speed rail is good. That they can build it, and that you know it will galvanize voters to fund the ends of the system, which actually go the places people want it to go.
0: And the poor people uh, of Bakersfield, California's just been kind of doing things to them for a long time, so why yeah. not just add another a, a concept for a high-speed rail on top of it?: So the, the downside here to that plan is, and this is
1: what was in the report that came out um, this week is that middle section is now proving so expensive that uh the high speed rail authority is not sure they will be able to complete it with cur- without more funding which may or may not require another bond vote by california high- voters um so it's like i would i i I'd, I'd still put money if i was a betting man on the middle segment being finished someday but it's looking a lot worse than it used to. Um, and it's and it's like we're now at the point where we're actively wondering if the wealthiest state in probably the wealthiest country in the world uh, can build a train. It's it's a question mark. We don't know if we can build this train or not. Um, it's 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 pretty it's pretty, pretty sad if you if you ask me.
0: Yeah, you you can see on the map here, uh, north of Los Angeles, far south of San Francisco, there's Bakersfield. Uh, just kind of off by itself, doing its own thing. Yeah, now now show the good people where Merced is. Merced? Yeah, hold on. How because do I spell The it?
1: other end, uh, M-E-R-C-E-D, because that's where the other end is going to be. This is where the train will go to and from.
0: I see. There it is. I see. Good times. Uh, Yeah. It'll be great. Yeah. Just, yeah. Wow. All right. So let's take us back to uh, uh, New York um, and LaGuardia. Oh, man. How much time do we have? I'm getting, I'm getting tired. Uh, I'm getting, (laughs) I mean, I am getting hungry. Lunch is coming up. Uh, I do still want to talk about, I want to talk about LaGuardia um, I want to talk about uh uh why uh, New York City also built a, a train station that its trains won't fit in um uh, let's do let's do that one instead LaGuardia, the tldr would never you know you
1: can read about it more on on vice.com uh, but the tldr is we're no longer building the dumbest train uh, maybe the dumbest train uh proposed in the country because the guy who really wanted to build it got kicked out of office for sexual harassment and not because it was a dumb train. That's the TLDR. Good
0: times. Okay. So, uh, I read thanks to you that New York city built a train station that its trains won't fit in.
1: <laughs> what? Yes. <Yeah>, so, <laughs> so, uh, recently a train station that the MTA likes to call grand central Madison, Uh, which is a rebrand of a project called East Side Access, which has been in construction since the 1990s, uh, to build a new Long Island Railroad terminal underneath Grand Central, like 16 stories underneath Grand Central. Um, They call it a separate train station. It's a train station below an existing train station. Um, It takes 10 minutes to take the escalator from the tracks to surface level. because it is so deep. And it is also, incidentally, about a 15-minute walk from where Long Island Railroad trains had previously terminated in Manhattan, uh, Penn Station. So, you know, plus or minus five minutes. All, all good. Uh, it cost $12 billion to build. And a, a, a little minor problem here. Is uh, 20% of the Long Island Railroad's trains do not fit through the tunnel that leads to the new $12 billion
0: train station. How did no one realize this? They did. They've known since 2016. Why? Okay. Let me – okay. I feel like it's time for us to get – Gather your thoughts. Gather your thoughts. I feel like it's time for us to get into big picture territory here. Um, as I keep hearing these themes, uh, uh, bureaucracy, lost paperwork, like, I, I hesitate to use the word grift so much as, like, deep ignorance. Um, why? Why does this keep happening everywhere? Why is the system around mass transit in this country so fucked up?
1: So I want to preface my response to your question by saying, broadly speaking, I have a lot of respect for the people who work for our public transit authorities. Uh, This isn't meant to denigrate the individuals who work for them. I've interviewed and spoken to and just generally know a huge number of people who work for public transit authorities at all levels who I deeply respect and have, you know, really do want to. Build build good things, have riders' best interests at heart, run good service, and see the same things we see. So I just want to make that, you know, point very clear off the top. This is not some conservative rant about how, you know, government bureaucracies are bad, private entities are good. Like that's not that's not the vibe here. However, there's very clearly a huge problem, right? In this as you point out, to these big picture themes. The question is why, and that is certainly um, a huge topic that uh, I'm sure a very long book could be written about. Uh, a very exciting book that I'm sure would be a national bestseller. Um, but I will I will point out kind of like a couple of things here. First, I would love to recommend the work of the Transit Costs Project from the NYU Marin Group um which i've written about for the website I've profiled them I've written about their work several times they just issued their final report after having done a multi-year project basically looking at why us transit costs are so high which is um a very a very related question to the one you asked right why do the bureaucracies seem to function so poorly um and their report lays out a lot of the key reasons all the key reasons, I would say. It's extremely thorough, easily the best work done on the subject to date. There are no easy answers. The fundamental problem, I think, like the the, the absolute highest level fundamental problem is the broken relationship between politics and public works in this country. In countries, I'm going to paint very broad brushes here, but in, in countries where public transit generally works, there's there's a there's an understanding amongst the political organizations that essentially govern them in one way or another that functional, efficient, and well designed public transit is not an issue to bicker over, or is not an issue for party politics or fighting. To mo- most degrees, that's not to say that doesn't occur. Obviously, it occurs. But it occurs on a much lower level and to a much smaller degree than it does in the U.S. In the U.S., every public works project is a source of horse trading and, lo- and, and parochialism in our local political structure. Everyone wants to know what's in it for them, how they're going to get something out of it, how they're going to make this work to their personal or constituent advantages. We prioritize local politics in the U.S. to a much higher degree than I think most other countries do. Um, and as a result, when you're trying to build efficient transit networks, you end up having to satisfy a essentially a cabal of local bosses is what it really amounts to, right? Politicians who represent local areas. And it's a pretty fundamentally impossible task what you end up seeing instead is a political system where any time any politician gets some complaint from some constituent about something related to public transit they go to the transit agency and yell at them and then you have the transit agency trying to essentially explain why they did but the local politician doesn't care they just know that constituents are mad and that's something they can capitalize on and this is pretty much what you see across the country whether it's You know, people are mad that transit is being built near them or people are mad that transit isn't being built near them or people are mad that bus stops are being taken away or put in or that tax dollars are going towards transit or not going towards transit. And it just ends up in this parochial constant fight in which nothing productive gets done. And transit agencies are not empowered to break this deadlock. And that's, I think that's kind of like, my highest level answer to what, what you're asking
0: about. That makes, that's very depressing. It's a very depressing answer. And also kind of go like it, it, it kind of highlights the conversation we were having offline before we jumped into this call, right. About uh, the atomization of the American people, the growth of the suburbs, despair. um, And I think kind of speaks to this um, part of the American spirit is like w- we like to fight each other, um, and we're all very interested in what we're going to get out of anything, and it's hard for us to imagine a world where we cooperate. I think, right? So I want to I, I want to go back
1: to you know Jason's experience in Japan for a minute, and not to fetishize Japan because th- similar things happen across the world, mm-hmm. but. One of the things Jason was am- amazed by is that he could use one transit pass for basically everything in the country, even though the buses, the trains, the subways, the bullet trains, all this stuff are all run by different entities. Even Tokyo's subway is run by several different transit companies, some are private, some are public private partnerships or government related entities. You would look at this and think it would be a huge mess, except there's no desire for it to be a mess. It would be unacceptable if it was a mess. And so there's a desire for cooperation to create a better system. I don't want to oversimplify this. There's a lot of, a lot of very complex cultural things going on here. But I do think there's something to your point, which is America is an individualistic country. It's about what you can do for yourself, maybe about what you can help your neighbors for, you know, this kind of like, old school form of, you know, neighborliness, but it's not a country that prioritizes, uh, setting aside differences to, to accomplish common goals. That's not typically our history, especially now as we have lots of political structures to ensure that people's voices are heard who previously were, you know, essentially steamrolled over to build public works. And, some people say that that has been a huge problem because we can no longer build huge public works. And I see the logic there, but I feel like that's kind of missing the forest for the trees because, um, you know, I think it's actually good that we're concerned about making sure public works serve everybody's interests and not just a small number of people's. However, there's no denying that this mindset has been abused. And, you know, I think it's, often, you know, by people who the laws were not intended to help, you know, like rich people in the suburbs who don't want a transit system going to them. Um, so, you know, it's very complicated. But yes, it's always about how can I make this system work for me? How can I get something out of it? How can it serve my interests on both the political level and the individual level? And I think it makes it very hard to build effective transit when you, appro- when you approach it that
0: way. All right. Here at the end, before I let you go, Aaron, I do want to do a little another little international corner um, and highlight how different countries have different mass transit problems. Uh, You alerted me to a story in The Washington Post that you wanted to talk about.
1: Uh, Railroad fan kind of. I don't think this is mass transit, to be honest. It seems like one man's transit, the (laughs) the exact opposite of mass transit.
0: Fair enough. Well, um, I'll say it this way then. Uh, different company different countries have a more top-down authoritarian uh view of how they get <laughs> things done and um, perhaps in those countries you could get much a much more uh, uh easier to build out a mass transit system however there's going to be drawbacks such as railroad fan photographed Putin's armored train now he lives in exile aaron what what happened to this poor train spotter
1: I I really appreciated this story from a journalistic perspective, um, which is why I flagged it. And also just because it's such a, like a pure rail fan story. Like this is a 31 year old guy who lived in Russia Uh, He was a huge rail fan since a young age. A rail fan is like the term we use for, for people who are really into trains, like way more than I am. Like they go photograph them. They track them. They look for weird routings and pairings of locomotives with cars and then nerd out over it. It's just like a whole community. He was part of this community. And I guess he was really into photographing Putin's train. Putin likes traveling by train as... Many people who are afraid of flying and death do. Um, and he's a he's reportedly, um, gotten way more into his train since COVID started. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. I'm not sure anybody is really, but in any event, this guy in 2018 photographed Putin's train. Um, and, it looks like a normal ish train. If you don't really know anything about trains, it's got a locomotive at the front. It's got cars in the back. Um, but he received extremely threatening, uh, message board replies that he strongly suspects were from the Russian secret service. Um, and at once the war started, fled the country. Um, uh, and he now lives in Sri Lanka, I believe um which i don't know if i was afraid of the russian secret service i would not publicize where i live even to the country level but (laughs) that's that's neither here nor there um yeah so it's like you know our trains suck here but i'm also pretty sure if i photograph one i won't be killed so uh pros and cons people pros and cons
0: pros and cons pros and cons that's what we're all about here at cyber Aaron, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast once again and talking to us. Uh, we're going to figure out a way to talk about the suburbs and atomization. I don't know how we're going to do it. but We're going to figure uh, it out. I'll have to write that article we talked about off air. That, I think it's a good idea. Absolutely. Right. I would read it. Uh, everybody, right. if you if you like the show, please uh, follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV or on youtube.com forward slash Weatherboard and you will be notified when we go live uh, and you can participate in the chat uh, if you have train questions from mr gordon you can come and ask them uh, he probably knows the answer i'm going to put him on the spot repeatedly uh for for as long as we are doing this show uh thank you all and we will see you next week uh stay safe out there stay safe goodbye